for this beautiful spring day that you have provided for us. We are, as Joan told us last week, we are so blessed. We really are. We know the creator of the universe, and we have your holy book that tells us all about you. And, and hopefully every one of us in this room has been saved, and we have so much to look forward to, spending eternity with you. And we can have the abundant life here and now on this earth if we will merely be willing to trust and obey what you have to tell us in your word and to just lean on those everlasting arms. We are truly so blessed. Help us, therefore, not to be murmurers and not to grumble and, and complain about trivial little things that happen to us in this life, but may we see all things in light of eternity and know that whatever happens to us is just ultimately for our own good and ultimately for your glory. Father, thank you for these women, for their hunger, for your word. I pray that you will bless them for having been here this morning, for we do pray in Christ's name. Amen. In this lesson, which I have entitled Abram and Lot Separate, we are going to find a distinct difference between Uncle Abraham and Nephew Lot. Although both men had journeyed down into Egypt, one had returned wiser, while the other one had returned worldlier. One had learned his lesson through divine chastisement and through some great humiliation, but he had learned his lesson to walk by faith in God's word and not to use circumstances and self-preservation as his guides in life. The other man, however, did not learn from the errors of his older companion, and therefore he did not learn a needed lesson about walking by faith and not by sight. Even though it was Abraham who had made a great mess of things down there in Egypt and not Lot, yet Abraham was the one who had grown spiritually from that experience. And when he left Egypt, there was no place for Egypt in his heart. Lot, on the other hand, had left Egypt physically because he left with his uncle Abraham Yet his heart was still there. He left Egypt, but Egypt was still in his heart. So as we see in this current study, he made very serious errors. He made the error of using materialism as his guide. Remember now, we've had uh, Abraham has had the famine test, and he's had the um, self-preservation test, and he failed both. But he's going to have fly. He's going to pass with flying colors today the materialism test but lot will not pass that test in first corinthians 2 we learn that there are only three kinds of people in the world there is what is called the natural man and that is of course speaking of the unsaved individual the person who lives for himself and for this world and this man is pictured for us in genesis chapter 13 by the canaanites and by the Perizzites, which we'll read about in verse 7, and also by the wicked citizens of Sodom, who we'll read about in verse 13. So the natural man we find in this chapter, the second kind of man we read about in Scripture is the carnal man. He is the saved individual. He does know the Lord Jesus as his personal Lord and Savior, but he's saved, but he's still living for the world. He's living for himself. He's carnal. And who do you think he is represented as in this chapter or by? Lot. So we have the natural man, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, and the uh, Gazuntites, 
no, I mean the, <laughs> the Sodomites. And then we have the carnal man, who is represented by Lot. And then the third kind of person that we find in the world is the spiritual man. And he, of course, is the saved individual who is living for God. And he is represented in this chapter by Abraham. Now, Abraham had returned from Egypt a subdued but spiritually stronger individual. He had made, as we learned, some very serious mistakes, both when he left Canaan because of the famine, and then even when he dwelled in Egypt, he had made some mistakes regarding his wife. But through God's intervening grace, he had returned to the place of God's will. And we saw that in the first four verses of chapter 13. He had repented of his sin, and he had consequently been restored to full fellowship and communion with God. He had tasted the fruit of his own sin, and now we find that he has no desire to repeat that experience. From now on, except for a few little failures along the way, Abraham is going uphill in his spiritual walk with God. So the Abraham that we find in Genesis 13 is a far wiser and a far more spiritual Abraham than we found back in chapter 12 in Egypt. Now in our consideration of verses 5 to 18, we're going to look at three main divisions. First of all, in verses 5 to 7, we're going to look at a conflict which arose between the herdsmen of Abraham and the herdsmen of Lot. And then in verses 8 to 13, we're going to consider a choice which was made by each of the two central characters, a choice by Abraham and then a choice by Lot. And then in verses 14 to 18, we will look at a compensation, a compensation from God to Abraham for that which he seemingly lost both in land and in family. So let's begin by looking at a conflict, and for this we're going to look at verses 5 to 7. Genesis 13, starting at verse 5. It says, And Lot also, which went with Abram, had flocks and herds and tents. And the land was not able to bear them, that they might dwell together. For their substance was great, so that they could not dwell together. And there was a strife between the herdmen of Abram's cattle and the herdmen of Lot's cattle. And the Canaanite and the Perizzite dwelled then in the land. Okay, so the situation that we read about here in these verses was apparently one of the consequences of having gone down into, where? Egypt. Abraham had come away from that experience with much increased wealth. Remember, we read about all the uh, uh, oxen and sheep and men servants and maid servants and camels, and then we even learned about silver and gold and cattle that he had gained because of his journey down into Egypt. And it seems now that Lot had also prospered with flocks and material possessions, and that was probably due to Abraham's assistance. He probably gave him some of what he had gained there. Furthermore, their unauthorized detour into Egypt and the experience which they had, had down there evidently left some scars on Lot and on his employees or his servants with regard to their respect for Abraham. Remember now, they had seen what Abraham had done in his scheming and in his lying. And so it looks like their respect for him, his mistakes and his humiliation in Egypt had uh, perhaps lowered their respect for him and their reverence and admiration, which perhaps and probably they had once had. 
Also, now that Abraham and Lot were back in the hill country of Canaan, which was just recovering from a famine, they found that there was a lack of pasture space for all of their joint herds of cattle and their flocks and all that they possessed. The land which had once sustained them when they were far less prosperous was now not adequate since they had this uh, great substance, we're told. And this factor, along with, you think about the added problems of um, watering space at wells and even perhaps a competitive spirit among the various herdsmen of the two groups, created a situation which was just ripe, ripe for contention. So strife arose between the herdsmen of Abraham and the herdsmen of Lot. Unfortunately, you know, it's often the case that material possessions which are gained by believers, because Abraham and Lot were both believers, remember that. Oftentimes, material possessions gained by believers will lead to problems, especially if those uh, possessions and wealth have been gained by worldly means and methods. Although, when we look around our world, we find that most people covet the, um, the Hollywood crowd and the sports heroes who make multi-millions of dollars. And most people would covet those that win some kind of huge sweepstakes or a lottery and say, oh, wow, if only that could be me. If I could win a million dollars, I would do this and I would do that. Yet the case is that if you will look at those people's lives, if you follow up after they gained all their wealth, you'll find that they're more miserable. They have more problems after they gained that money than they had before. And this can even happen in God-fearing Christian families as well, can't it? When suddenly someone comes into a great deal of wealth within a family. And we see this a lot of times with inheritances, where it can really cause, cause some strife in even Christian families. You know, wealth in itself, we've said this over and over again through the years, but wealth in itself is not at all evil. Uh, the problem comes when the first love of a person is their wealth. And that can happen just as easily with the poor as it can with the rich, right? It really can. And sometimes it's even more with the poor that they covet. Their first love is to have money because they don't have it and they think that's what they want. Christians should, the bottom line is whether you're poor or rich or in between and actually worldwide, we're all rich in this country, but Christians should be content regardless of their monetary status. I mean, look at us compared to those people living over in Burma in their bamboo huts and their dirt floors and no electricity. And I mean, we are definitely, every, even the poorest of us is rich. So we should be content regardless of our status. We should not ever covet wealth. Instead, our hearts should be set on our walk with the Lord. What does it say in 1 Timothy 6, 10? For the love of money. It doesn't say for money is the root of all evil. It says for the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. We will see that this is exactly what happened to Lot. He coveted materialism and wealth 
and all that the world provides, and he pierced himself through with many sorrows. The most tragic factor when we think about the strife between the herdsmen of Abraham and the herdsmen of Lot is that it was such a horrible testimony in front of who? Right, the unbelievers. That's Why, why does this, the Holy Spirit mention that the Canaanite and the Perizzite dwelled in the land? Why do you think the Holy Spirit had Moses put that in there? Because of the fact that this fighting going on among Christians was such a terrible testimony in front of these unbelievers. Abraham, remember, was to be a blessing to the nations and families of the earth. And he had already blown it once by compromising his testimony over there in Egypt and before the Egyptian pharaoh of the land. And he did not wish to make the same mistake again before the watching eyes of his neighbors, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. It's a bad enough situation for fellow believers to be quarreling, but to have a major falling out in front of the unsaved is even worse. Would you not agree? <clears throat> when Christians argue and fight, it damages their testimony for the Lord. It does not give glory to God. And this is why the Lord prayed, the Lord Jesus prayed, that his own people might be what? Might be one, so that the world might believe, that the world might see that they had love one for another and be drawn to him. And this is why the Apostle, Apostle Paul told the believers at the church of Philippi, he said, do all things without murmurings and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Why are we to be so blameless and harmless and to not grumble and mumble? Because we're in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. We have to show them something different than what they're used to. Not only might the strife between brethren destroy their witness for God to the lost, but it also could have resulted in the loss of some of their own flocks. Think about that. Seeing, you know, seeing the herdsmen of these two foreign men arguing with one another day and night, having all this strife, that might provide the Canaanites and the Perizzites with opportunities to sneak in and plunder from their flocks and their herds while they were engaged in fighting. You know, they might have been so busy fighting that they weren't watching as they should have been their flocks. And this is precisely what can occur in church fights. While division is going on within a church, the flock of that particular church may scatter. Sheep who are not well grounded, perhaps, in sound doctrine may scatter to apostate churches where the Bible is not held up as the uh, final authority for faith and practice. And other sheep may simply cease from attending church altogether. So while the church is busy fighting within itself, the enemy, Satan, can come in and plunder and that's just exactly what he likes to do. And if you've ever experienced a church fight, you know that this is true. Some people will just leave, and you'll never see them again. The Canaanites and the Perizzites would have noticed, of course, the altar which Abraham had built. 
Uh, they would have noticed that he worshipped a different God from the ones with which they had grown familiar. And they would be watching him, and they would be watching Lot, and they would be watching all their employees to see if this faith of theirs, this new faith, it really wasn't new, it's the original one, but it was new to them because they had gotten so steeped in paganism that they wanted to see if this made any effect on their lives, if they were different from what they were uh, used to among themselves. The unsaved, natural man will judge our God and he will judge our faith by what? By our actions, by our behavior. Abraham had learned this lesson. He had already learned this down in Egypt when he totally destroyed his testimony for God before the very important ruler of Egypt, the Pharaoh himself. And so he did not wish to repeat that disgrace for his God. So Abraham, the elder and the wiser of the two men, determined that he was going to nip this dispute in the bud, which is always a wise thing to do, nip it in the bud, before it would destroy their testimony totally for God before the heathen, and even perhaps before they would uh, diminish some of their flock, lose some of their flock by their neglectful watch over the enemy. So that was the conflict. Let's look now at verses 8 to 13, which is the second part of our outline entitled The Choice. And in this section, we're first of all going to look at the wisdom of Abraham as he made a choice in verses 8 and 9. And then secondly, we're going to look at the worldliness of Lot. And that'll be in verses 10 to 13. So let's begin by looking at the wisdom of Abraham, verses 8 to 9. And Abram said unto Lot, Let there be no strife, I pray thee, between me and thee, and between my herdmen and thy herdmen, for we be brethren. Is not the whole land before thee? Separate thyself, I pray thee, from me. If thou wilt take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if thou depart to the right hand, then I will go to the left. Abraham realized that the bickering which was occurring between the herdsmen, their various herdsmen, could soon lead also to a division between him and his beloved nephew. Remember now, he really, really loves Lot as, as his son that he hasn't had yet. And so he realized that if this strife continued, it would even affect their relationship. And therefore, he realized that the wise thing to do was to separate in order to avoid any further friction between themselves. The wisdom which comes from above is, first of all, pure and, what's the other word? Peaceable, right? It tells us in James 3.17. The Bible tells us, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Romans 12.18. Abraham was going to be a peacemaker here. Furthermore, Abraham would have been concerned not only with his relationship with Lot, but as I've already mentioned, with the testimony before the watching eyes of all the Canaanites and the Perizzites. So it was Abraham who took the initiative here in this situation because he was the, the more spiritually mature of the two men. He went directly to Lot. Uh, to the, he went directly to the point with Lot. I mean, he didn't beat around the bush or anything. In effect, he just told Lot that he was willing to do absolutely anything in order to preserve the peace. 
And what was the reason he gave? Look at the end of verse 8. For we be brethren. We are brothers in Christ or in God. He understood that the things which united them were of much greater value than the things which divided them. Their mutual belief in God united them. And their mutual need to be a testimony before the wicked, I mean the pagans, the lost um, of the world, also was something that united them. Also to be a testimony even before their own workers. Because we can be sure that not all those workers, all those herdsmen, were saved. I'm sure some of them were, but I doubt all of them were saved. And also they had all these Egyptian maid servants and um, men servants that they had brought over with them. And they needed to be a testimony in front of them as well to have them get saved. So the things that united them were of greater value than the things which divided them. Only cattle divided them, right? And things are never worth division among the family of God. You know, a church should never argue about things, like what color the pews are. (laughs) That's ridiculous. The things that unite a church are so much more important. Their testimony for God and before the world, and their love for one another, and their love for the Lord. Believers are to love one another. They're not to, Dottie always likes this, they're not to bite and devour one another. They're to love one another. They're not to fight over trivial matters, especially is this to be true within the family. Lot and Abraham were not only brothers in Christ, but they were family. However, as we will find, Lot was a carnal believer. He was not a friend of God, as Abraham is called. We don't ever read that Lot was a friend of God. We read several times in the scripture that Abraham was a friend of God. But what was Lot? He was a friend of the world because his heart was set on wealth and on creature comforts and not on pleasing God. It seems reasonable to conclude that really Lot was basically at fault in this conflict here. He did not do anything at all to attempt to subdue his own herdsmen by telling them that he owed absolutely everything he had to his uncle Abraham and therefore not to quarrel over the situation. Now that's what he should have done. He should have reprimanded his own herdsmen and told them, cool it. You know, we we would have nothing if it wasn't for Abraham. He should have commanded his workers to concede first rights both to pasture lands and to watering holes or wells to Abraham because he was the leader and he was the elder. It should have been Lot who first came to Abraham to apologize and to attempt to settle the differences which were arising among their workers. However, Lot was more interested in pastures than he was in peace. He was a righteous man, we know that, we're told that in 2 Peter 2, verses 7 and 8, but he was not devoted to God. He was saved, but he was not sold out. He was not surrendered. He was a carnal Christian. He was, uh, and many church splits and many family divisions are caused by who? Carnal Christians. They say the most noise How does that go? The most noise always comes from the shallow end of the pool. 
you know, where all the little kitties are swimming around, the babies. So the elder spiritual believer made the first move. Abraham went to Lot to make peace. It's interesting to see his growth here because over in Egypt, Abraham had put who first? He had put himself above even his wife, Sarah. He had put his own self-preservation above Sarah's. However, now that he had returned to Canaan and returned to the will of God and and fellowship with God, he put others first and not himself. Even though, as the elder and as the one who had taken Lot under his care, as, you know, a guardian after Lot's father had died, so even though Abraham had every right to resolve this conflict by going to Lot and telling him what to do, saying, you know, you go over there, you have that land, and I'll take this. He had every right to do that, yet what did he do? He gave up his own rights. As Jones said, he took off his shoes, and uh, he, gave, he gave first right to Lot. He gave him, Lot, the opportunity to make the first choice when it came to land. To always insist on having our own rights does not generally solve problems. How many of you have ever learned that little lesson? (laughs) It does not solve problems. It usually only further aggravates a problem. Romans 12.10 tells us, Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love in honor, doing what? Preferring one another. You know, putting the other man, the other person, above yourself. It also says, as you all know, in Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. It also says, look not every man on his own things, but also on the things of others. And then in that chapter, it goes on to tell us that who is the example? But let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Although equal with God, what did Jesus do? He humbled himself to take upon himself the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of man, and even died on a humbling, shameful cross for us. So he is the example of preferring others, esteeming others better than ourselves. The spiritual man or woman will not insist on his own rights, but he will sacrificially yield them to others. Abraham's willingness to give Lot the first choice of land in which to settle demonstrates that his priorities about the things of this world were in the right order. He was more interested in peace than he was uh, about uh, pastures. He was more interested in peace with with the brethren and with his own relationship with the Lord and with his testimony now before others than he was in winning an argument and that than he was in uh, showing his superiority and gaining a, a better advantage for his own flocks and herds and accumulating more wealth those things were not as important as his testimony and his walk with god carnal worldly matters were not of primary interest to Abraham. Spiritual matters came first and foremost. And, of course, that is what should be the case with us. Seek ye first, what? 
the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these other things will be added unto you. When Abraham sacrificed his own right to make first choice as to land options, he was doing the wise thing. This was the wise thing because who was he trusting in this situation? He was trusting God, and he was putting others above himself. He was showing concern for his testimony. He was demonstrating that spiritual concerns are more important than material things, and that all of this shows great wisdom, godly wisdom. Abraham had learned that his God would take care of his needs regardless of where he was. So he offered the choices of fields to Lot. And his proposal to Lot, when you read about it, he says, you know, if you go to the right, I'll go to the left. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. That was a very generous offer. And yet we find out that Lot's choice, to which we turn now, was not at all generous. It was selfish, it was greedy, it was materialistic, and it showed a very poor character. So let's look at the worldliness of Lot and see the choice that he made. Verses 10 to 13. After Abraham made the, the you know, told him what, that he could take whichever land he wanted, Lot lifted up his eyes and beheld all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Now that's a little parenthesis. This is Moses telling us that this was before God destroyed. See, Moses is writing after Sodom and Gomorrah have been destroyed, so he's just telling us that this was before they were destroyed by God. And it says about the land of uh, Jordan that it was even as the garden of the Lord. That speaks of the garden of Eden. And like the land of Egypt, as thou comest unto Zoar. Then Lot chose him all the plain of Jordan. And Lot journeyed east, and they separated themselves the one from the other. Abram dwelled in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelled in cities of the plain, and pitched his tent toward Sodom. But the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. A man who is eager for material gain is not generally known for demonstrating grace. Lot showed no grace at all in his response to Abraham's offer. He did not even hesitate in accepting Abraham's generous offer. He did not try to protest. You know, he doesn't say, oh, well, no, Uncle Abraham, you really should have first choice. No protest at all. Instead, what did he do? He immediately lifted his eyes to that which his heart was already set upon. Rather than deferring to Abraham, who was not only his elder, but who was his guardian and his benefactor and his uncle, as he should have done, he should have deferred to him, but yet he didn't. He, took, he, he decided to take the most desirable land, at least from the human perspective. You know, to the natural man and the carnal man, this was the most desirable land, the plain of Jordan. His carnal character is seen by the choice of the land that he decided to move to in his separation from Abraham. He fixed his eyes on what? The plain of Jordan. And that was in the direction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And then, as I told you, Moses added the information that this was before those cities were destroyed. So Lot wanted what he thought was the best land. 
and that was the area of the Jordan Plain, which it would appear to be and was before it was destroyed. It was exceedingly rich and fertile land. And uh, so the lust of the eyes was the beginning of Lot's spiritual decline. Wasn't that the way it was at the very beginning? With who? Eve. It was the lust of the eyes because she looked at the tree of the knowledge of uh, good and evil and saw that it was saw that it was good for food and pleasant to the eyes. So watch out with that eye gate. So like Eve, Lot first saw and then he coveted just as she did. She desired to be, she saw that it was desirable to make her wise. She wanted to be as wise as God. And finally, just like Eve, then he took He saw, he coveted, and he took. Verse 11 says he chose him all the plain of Jordan. First of all, he looked up with his eyes, and then he chose. He unhesitatingly separated himself from his uncle in order to take what looked to him like the best land. He was being deceived by his own lusts. While Abraham had his eyes fixed upon a city which hath foundations, whose maker builder and maker is God, as it tells us over in Hebrews 11.10, Lot had his eyes fixed on that wicked city of Sodom, whose maker and designer we know was Satan. So Lot regressed by going toward Sodom and toward worldliness and away from the blessings of God. Perhaps, we don't know, but perhaps he even rationalized in his own mind that he could be a witness for the Lord to the citizens of Sodom. And uh, at the same time, he could also enjoy some of the benefits of living close to a major city. You know, it it would have provided uh, your local Sodomite Walmarts and all your your, uh, entertainment and your nightclubs and your luxuries and your creature comforts, which surely would be much better than living in a nomadic tent outside. So I'm sure that somehow or another he tried to rationalize and think that he could be a witness for the Lord in that wicked city and yet benefit from from the city itself, the city life. So the downward backsliding course of Lot's life is spelled for us in the scripture in just a few phrases. After First of all, it begins by um, verse 10 where it says that he lifted up his eyes and beheld, that's the first step, In his spiritual decline, he lifted up his eyes. Then the second is in verse 11 where it says he chose all the plain of Jordan and separated himself from Abraham, the godly influence that he should have had. And then what did he do in verse 12? He pitched his tent toward Sodom. See, he's edging his way toward the city. First of all, he just looks at it from afar, and then he chooses it, And now he's got his tent toward it. And then look at chapter 14, verse 12. We find out that he actually dwelt in Sodom. I don't know if that's, yeah, dwelt in Sodom. And then we finally read over in chapter 19, verse 1, that he is seated at the gate, or in the gate of the city. So, He's not only living in Sodom, but he's one of its magistrates, so to speak. And we also find that at least two of his daughters have even married Sodomite men. 
And sin, you know, is just like that. This is so typical of sin. It can start with something as small as just a mere lifting up of the eyes. Think of, who do you think of? David, right? Just a mere looking up of the eyes or looking down of the eyes in his case. But it can spread so rapidly. You know, you can, you can look at just one TV program, just one simple, and, may, and maybe get addicted to it. Or men with their problem of just a mere looking at uh, pornography. Just a mere look at something. Or even, you know, material things. That we look at something and we think we start to covet and think that we need it. But just a mere lifting up the eyes can spread rapidly and it can end in disaster. It is usually just a series of small steps or small choices which lead a person downhill. Each step will make that person somewhat weaker and weaker and weaker in his stand against temptation. But Lot ultimately gained absolutely nothing, did he? I mean, he was thinking he was gaining the best, and he wound up gaining nothing. He ended up losing everything that he ever owned. He had a warning, we'll see next week, Lord willing, he had a warning from God about leaving Sodom when Sodom was plundered and he was taken away as captive. But what did he do even after that strong warning? You know, Abraham had to go and rescue him and bring him back and everything. He went right back to living in Sodom. And eventually, as you know, Sodom was completely destroyed by fire and brimstone from heaven. So he lost everything that he ever owned, you know, materialistically. He also lost his testimony before all of the citizens of Sodom and before even his own sons-in-laws, who were married to two of his daughters, um, because they mocked his words of coming judgment. They just mocked him. You know, they didn't believe him at all. He had no testimony there in Sodom. And he even lost his own peace of soul. We are told in Second Peter 2, verses 7 and 8, that he was vexed in his soul. It says he was a righteous man, but he was vexed by the filthy conversation of the Sodomites. And it says that his righteous soul was vexed from day to day by their unlawful deeds. So, you know, you ask yourself, why in the world did he stay there? Why didn't he get out? Well, he was hooked on material things. And then also he lost, of course, you know, his wife. And he wound up living in a cave. And in drunkenness and in incestuous conduct with his other two daughters, his unmarried daughters, he even lost what little bit remained of his character and his respectability. Like many Christians who attempt to ride the fence between serving the Lord and the world, uh, Lot ended up with nothing but wood, hay, and stubble to show to Christ at the judgment seat. The only thing that Lot did not lose, and this is only because of God's grace, was what? His salvation. But as it says, but so as by fire. But, you know, he did not lose his salvation because we believe that it is impossible for a person once truly saved to ever lose their salvation. So Lot is a perfect example of contemporary carnal Christians who attempt to have, to have the both the best of both worlds. And the United States of Abundance is filled with these kind of Christians. 
in great abundance, wanting to have the best of both worlds. He wanted the eternal benefit of living, of having the Lord as his Savior and knowing that he would live eternally, you know, in heaven with God, but he also wanted the earthly benefits, which are a result of having worldly possessions and position, because that's also part of his problem. He wanted a position with the world at the gate of Sodom. He desired fellowship and acceptance among the worldly crowd more than among the spiritual crowd, because he lacked the spiritual crowd, didn't he? And he went and joined the worldly crowd. Even though it vexed his soul, he wanted the acceptance of the worldly crowd. He did not engage with them in their wicked ways, yet he did enjoy, I don't know how, but he did enjoy living with them and sitting with them in the gate. Now, Dr. John Phillips, in his commentary on Genesis, writes these very profound words. He says, The first question that comes to a soul is heaven or hell. The second question is heaven or earth. He says, Lot had answered the first question when he left Mesopotamia. He answered the second question when he chose Sodom. Very profound. Two important questions. First one you need to settle is heaven or hell. Second question, once that is settled, is will I live for heaven or will I live now for this earth, this world? Lot's greed and his worldliness made him initially think that the plain of Jordan was going to be a great place to live. He thought that he was making the best choice and that he would be far better off than his uncle, Abraham, living out there in, in the rugged hill country in the tent. Because Sodom had it all. I mean, it had warmth, it had fertile soil uh, with lush, well-irrigated fields right outside the city where he could keep his herds. And he could be near the city. Um, not near. He could have his cattle near the city, and yet he could live within the city and gain all the benefits of having a permanent home, not living in a tent. Uh, he could have a position with prestige. He could enjoy the great restaurants of Sodom and the nightlife and all the celebrities and all the various kinds of entertainment. He could have his own um, satellite dish <laughs> and just have a great time inside the city. So he thought that he was getting the best of both worlds. But we find that he would not have long to enjoy his gains at all. He would not enjoy them for very long because his worldly choice would cost him everything that he held dear to himself. Things of this world simply do not last, do they? Leslie and I were talking about that even with clothing. You know, it's almost a shame to spend any amount of money, really, on clothing because one cup of coffee can ruin it all, <laughs> which I'm notorious for doing. Uh, like those of Sodom, they will one day, all everything that we own right now, one day will be burned up and it will exist no more. So we've talked about this before. We shouldn't really get attached too much to anything here on this earth other than the word of God and souls, people. And that's, that's why it's so much wiser to do as Abraham and not as Lot and to seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness.
Matthew 6:33. Okay, let's look now at the third part of our outline, a compensation. And under this section, we're going to look at God's reward to Abraham, verses 14 to 17, and then Abraham's response to God in the last verse, verse 18. So let's look at God's reward to Abraham, verses 14 to 17. And the Lord said unto Abram, after that lot was separated from him, Lift up now thine eyes, and look from the place where thou art, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which thou seest, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed forever. And I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth, so that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then shall thy seed also be numbered. Arise, walk through the land in the length of it and in the breadth of it, for I will give it unto thee. It's really amazing and even kind of mysterious how God can take bad situations. He always does this. I mean, throughout the whole Bible, he does this. He can take bad situations such as strife and contention between the herdsmen of Lot and the herdsmen of Abraham, and he can use that to actually carry out his own plan and purpose. What was it that God had commanded Abraham to do at the very beginning? before he even left Ur of the Chaldees. And then again, when he was in Haran, what did he tell him to do? He said, separate thyself from all your kinsmen. But, you know, Abraham had taken along his father, who had become a hindrance. You see, God knew that it was not going to turn out to be the best thing for Abraham to carry along the natural man, Terah, his father, and the carnal man, Lot, his nephew. So he had told him to separate, but Abraham had taken along his father, and his father had become a hindrance, hadn't he? And therefore he had wasted precious years in living in Haran. And now Lot had become another problem. However, God's original plan was realized, wasn't it? It was carried out just like God had wanted it to be. It says in Proverbs 19:21, there are many devices in a man's heart, nevertheless the counsel of the Lord that will stand. God always gets his way in the end, doesn't he? So it's better to just obey him to begin with because he's going to get his way ultimately anyhow. And it would save us a lot of grief if we would just obey him to begin with. Well, after Lot journeyed east toward the plain of Jordan, Abram went back up into the rugged and desert hill country of Canaan. So to the natural man, the unsaved man, it would look as though Abraham had been a fool to give his nephew the first choice because it would appear that Abraham had gotten ripped off. He had gotten gypped in this deal. Yet, in fact, did he? No, not at all. (laughs) Abraham was absolutely right in how he had handled the situation. He not only took the initiative to be the peacemaker, which is always right, but he had yielded his own rights in order to do that. He put his faith in God to care for his needs first. He put his relationship with the Lord before anything temporal, anything earthly, and God was pleased. We know God was pleased because of what he told him in these verses we just read. And isn't that really ultimately all that is important, is if we please God? God was pleased, and that was all that mattered. Oftentimes, you know, when a person does God's will, it may not at first appear 
to have been wise. I mean, think of when Abraham took Isaac to offer him as a sacrifice. So at first, doing God's will sometimes does not really appear to be the wise thing to do. The fruit does not always come immediately, does it? I mean, farmers know that. Planted seeds do not immediately spring into crops or trees bearing lush fruit. And so this delay sometimes discourages the Christian, especially, you know, the young Christian. And especially if there are others around who criticize what appears to them to be a lack of fruit, a lack of success in a believer's life. I mean, you've heard about missionaries, for example, who have been on a field for years and years and years and see no fruit whatsoever. And then maybe 20, 30 years they have one convert, but then sometimes it just mushrooms like crazy from that one convert. I mean, you never know who might be a D.L. Moody, do you? So we have to watch that. We have to watch not getting discouraged if we don't see immediate success or immediate fruit. And far too often, also, the success of an individual is judged in wrong terms. God sees success differently Remember how Joan was sharing with you last week when she thought she really blew it over there in Korea. But God, you know, had a different plan in mind because he had some people he wanted to get saved, some women. So God does not judge success at all the way the world does. The success of an individual in worldly terms is often judged by size. You know, that's the first thing I always hear when somebody finds out I teach a ladies' Bible study. How many do you have coming? And I always say, I don't count, so I don't know, because David was punished by God when he counted how many people lived in Israel, and so I don't want to ever count. I don't know. So I just tell him, well, we don't know. And it doesn't matter anyway. I mean, I'd like to see the place packed out because I'd like to see more women having a hunger for God's word. I think the main deterrent to this ministry is homework. I think that's driven more people away because they just don't want to do homework. And I'm sorry for that, but as long as I'm teaching, I'm going to keep giving homework because it's important for you not to be spoon-fed. You've got to be in the Word yourself. So that's just the way it is. But anyway, they'll judge by numbers or size or eloquence of the speaker or by prosperity or other worldly standards. However, obedience to the will of God will always be rewarded in due season. Just mark that down. Put it in permanent ink because... It will. Obedience to God's will in due season will see fruit. It will bring the rewards and blessings of God. Patience. Patience is a key virtue in the Christian life, is it not? It's the one thing. I mean, I just, I have to, I just have to remind myself all the time to be patient. Not only with myself, because I know God isn't finished with me. I see so many things I'm frustrated about in my own life. But I have to know he's, he's worth still working on me. He's not through yet. And he will complete that, which he has begun. And same thing with my children. You know, I've got to have patience for God to do and work out everything in his time and in his way. In his timing, God will sooner or later, he will give confirmation of his pleasure. Now, in this situation, the confirmation of God's pleasure with Abraham came sooner. I mean, it did. It came right away. 
although the promises of his reward to Abraham would not come until much, much later. Although the worldling, the, the worldly person, might have said that Abraham got the raw end of this deal with Lot, he didn't because it is impossible to get ripped off when you are obeying God. No one would ever say that in the long run, Lot got a better deal than Abraham. No one, not even the worldliest person, would say that Lot turned out to have a better deal than Abraham. No one today will ever get shortchanged if they follow the Lord and his will. God again came to Abraham here, and in essence he told him that he had lost nothing for which he would not be more than compensated, both in this present life and in the life to come. It's interesting to note that there are two occasions of lifting up the eyes in this uh, chapter. Did you notice that? First of all, it was in connection with Lot. What did he do? He lifted up his eyes with longing toward the plain of Jordan and the wicked cities which dwelt there, Sodom and Gomorrah. So that was a worldly, covetous look. Now, in contrast, Abraham lifts up his eyes in obedience to God's command, verse 14. So this was not the look of coveting. This was not the look of longing. This was the look of obedience. And this is the kind of looking that our eyes should be engaged in. You know, we should not covetously look with the lust of our eyes upon the things of this world, but we should look at that which God commands us to see. And if you go through the Bible, you'll find out that God tells us to behold and to look upon a number of interesting things. We are to look, as Abraham did, to the heavenly city. You know, that city which hath not foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Uh, that means that we're to um, set our focus on heaven and the eternal, uh, put everything in it, it, light of eternity, have our, pers- our priorities in the proper perspective. It tells us in um, Isaiah forty twenty six to lift up our eyes and look to the heavens. That's an actual command. If we keep our focus on that which is eternal, then won't all of our priorities just naturally fall in place? They will set our affections on things that are above and not on things that are on the earth. And if we do that, then all the things of this world will grow strangely dim. None of our problems will seem so devastating. We are also told to lift up our eyes and look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who gave us the example of looking up to his Father, God, in heaven. Uh, Even while he was enduring the horrible shame of the cross, yet he was focused ahead to what? To the joy that was set before him. So even when we're engaged in terrible trials and tribulations, nothing that could ever compare to what he went through on the cross, yet we too are to set our focus on the joy which is set before us in glory with God. Again, in contrast to Lot, whose covetous looking up said, I will take, Abraham's looking up heard God say, I will give. You see the contrast? 
<clears throat> Although it may have seemed like Abraham lost out on the land deal with Lot, he actually wound up with all of it. Uh, God told him to look northward, northward, southward, I'm trying to think, northward, southward, eastward, and westward, and that all the land which he saw God would give to him and to his seed forever. So ultimately, this promise will be fulfilled. hasn't been fulfilled yet, but it will be fulfilled in the millennial kingdom when Israel will own all the land that God had promised to Abraham, and then in the eternal state. In the new heavens and the new earth, it will also be fulfilled. Not only did God promise Abraham all the land, which surely compensated for the land which he willingly sacrificed to Lot, but then he promised him a huge family, which surely compensated for the family from which he had just been separated. I'm sure this was hard for Abraham because he did dearly love Lot as a son. In verse 16, God said, And I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth, so that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then shall thy seed also be numbered. This was actually a further amplification of the Abrahamic covenant, which we began to look at over in chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, and also in verse 7. The Abrahamic covenant is given in uh, stages. So this is a further addition to the Abrahamic covenant. God had already promised to make a great nation from Abraham, remember? And now, using a figure of speech, he is telling Abraham that his descendants are going to total a number which is just too large to count. You know, like the dust particles of the earth, can anybody count them? No way. So it's a figure of speech saying that your descendants are going to be so large that no one can ever number them. And we know that, of course, the Jews and the Arabs have all come from Abraham And whatever their number has been from the beginning, no man could ever number. But in addition to his physical seed, Abraham also has a spiritual seed because he is called the father of all them that believe. So you and I are even spiritual seed from Abraham. And if you take together his spiritual and his physical seed, it is indeed, you know, a number far too much for anybody to know except God himself. Well, after commanding Abraham to lift up his eyes and look, then God told him, in essence, to lift up his feet and walk. So lift up his eyes and look, and lift up his feet and walk. Abraham, by faith, was to claim his promised inheritance by walking through the land in the length of it and in the breadth of it. You know, when we place our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, God gives us all spiritual blessings where? in heavenly places. <clears throat> Ephesians 1.3. That is the promised inheritance of the believer. We're Just like Lot was promised all the land, we are promised all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. So like Abraham, we have to appropriate that inheritance by faith. Now, of course, Abraham's command to walk through the length and the breadth of the land was not something that he had to do all at once. He didn't immediately have to get up and start marching through the whole length and then through the whole breadth of the land. Rather, it was a command for him to get acquainted with all that was his from God's riches in glory. He was to get familiar with his promised possessions. He was to learn the length and the width of God's promises so that he could more fully appreciate the blessings that God was giving to him. And you know what? You and I are to do exactly the same thing. As we travel 
the length and the breadth of what? God's word. Because this is the book that gives us the promises of God. This is the book that tells us about our inheritance, you know, that we've gotten all the riches and glory that are promised to us by God. So we are to travel the length, and and that's what we're trying to do. It's a lifelong thing. You never can travel the whole thing. But um, when we do that, we learn to more fully appreciate all that God has given to us as heirs of his promises. Well, the last thing we'll look at real quickly, verse 18, that was God's reward to Abraham. Now let's see Abraham's response to God. Verse 18, And Abram removed his tent and came and dwelt in the plain of Mamre, which is in Hebron, and built there an altar unto the Lord. God's promises to Abraham regarding the land and his seed resulted in a response of both obedience and worship. He not only lifted up his eyes, as God had commanded him to do, back in verse 14, but he lifted up his feet to begin to see the land which God had promised him. He picked up his tent, and it says he went over to the plain of Mamre, which is in Hebron. And I won't tell you, it's in your notes, where that name comes from and all that, but Hebron is a very famous place for the Jews. It becomes very famous. It actually means fellowship or communion. In Hebron, you know what else he did? He's already lifted up his eyes to behold and he's to be obedient. He's lifted up his feet to walk and, you know, again, to be obedient and to see what God has promised him. But now he lifts up his heart to the Lord because there he builds another altar for the Lord. God's promises moved Abraham to build an altar of worship and praise and honor and testimony to God. Now, in conclusion... What are some of the lessons of warning that we should learn from this study of Abraham's separation from Lot, which in general deal between uh, the, the contrast between the carnal man and the spiritual man? Well, first of all, we should learn, hopefully, from Lot's mistakes that it is always unwise to use material advantage as our guide in making choices. Lot you know, never built an altar. We never read about Lot building an altar. He never called upon the Lord to ask for guidance regarding the moves in his life as he slowly edged his way into Sodom. We don't read about him asking God if this was what he should do. Neither did he seek the counsel of godly uh, Abraham, his uncle. When he made his choice, it was according to the lust of his eyes, the lust of his flesh, and the pride of life. He did not take into consideration spiritual matters and how a move towards Sodom would affect not only his own spiritual life and walk with the Lord, but the spiritual life of his family. So rather than having spiritual food for his soul as his guide, he chose physical food for his cattle which meant, really, physical food for himself and, you know, physical uh, desires for himself because the more cattle he had, the more money he would have. He did not seek first the kingdom of God and fellowship with believers. He sought first the temporal kingdom and all that it offers by way of prosperity and um, position and prominence. And it's very sad when you think about a lot of Christians who, like Lot, make the same make similar choices. Uh, They choose jobs, for example, 
um, they choose residences, you know, where they're going to go, a location for where they're going to live. They choose schools for their children or um, housing developments or even marriages and churches on the basis of their own advantages, worldly kind of choices, their own advantages, rather than on spiritual principles. They may choose, for example, to move their family to a new location merely because they'll get a, you know, a raise in pay or it's a better job. So merely for money rather than taking in, into consideration whether a good Bible-believing church is available for the spiritual prosperity of the family. They may place um, their social advancement ahead of a healthy association with God's people. Lot did this. He based his choice on material gain with no thought for the spiritual health of himself or for his family, and thus, in the long run, he lost everything. He not only lost all he had gained physically, but he also lost his family. Furthermore, we not only learn from the error of Lot's choice of residence, but we learn from his worldliness that no man can truly serve two masters. Lot tried to ride the fence between the world and God because he wanted the best of both worlds. But his friendship with the world was what? Enmity with God, and he lost everything. He sowed to the flesh, and of the flesh he reaped a very heavy price. His, his life was a total failure of nothing but wood, hay, and stubble. Fortunately, as we said before, the only thing that he did not lose was his salvation, but he didn't even get to experience the joy of his salvation, would you say? I mean, think of the way he ended up in a cave with his own daughters, getting him drunk and having incest with him so that they could have children. And from their children came the uh, Moabites and the Ammonites? Amorites. I can't remember which one, but from their children came the enemies of Israel. But Abraham, on the other hand, teaches us from the positive side this time. You know, in Egypt he didn't, but here he does. He strove to be a peacemaker. Is that important? Yes, especially between brethren. He did not make an issue over who was right or who was wrong or who had first choice. Uh, He took the initiative in settling a dispute among brethren, and he willingly gave up his own rights in order to preserve peace and to maintain a Christian testimony to the neighbors. He took no offense either when Lot immediately took the choice land, but instead he entrusted himself to God and his care for him. He put spiritual matters above earthly. He he set his eyes on that which is above and permanent and not on the glitter and the glamour of this world, which is below, which is merely temporal. So we learn a lot this time from Abraham, don't we? He's on the right track again, and I'm glad for that. Let's pray. Father, we know that we do all have, as Dr. Phillips reminded us, we all have two very, very important choices to make. And the first one, of course, has to do with where we will spend eternity, for it's to choose between heaven or hell. And we know, Lord, from your word that that choice rests totally on what we choose to do with the Lord Jesus Christ. We can choose to acknowledge him as the promised seed of the woman, the one, the redeemer, the savior, the Messiah, who crushed Satan 
at the cross when he paid that penalty for sin on our behalf and defeated death and the grave and, um, and sin, or we can neglect making that acknowledgement. And if we do not believe on him, then we are already condemned because we are born as sinners. We're born in a sinful state and we are doomed to hell unless we make a purposeful choice and accept him as the one who died on our behalf. And then, Father, once we have placed our faith in him and we are promised eternal life in heaven, we come to the second choice, and that is uh, heaven or earth. And as we learned in this lesson, it is so, so much more important and wise to choose to live with heaven in perspective and not this earth, because all that is in this earth will one day perish and be no more. But that which is in heaven will last forever and ever and ever. So if there's one here who's trying to ride the fence between serving the world and serving you, between trying to get the benefit from both worlds, I pray, Lord, that today she would make the choice to surrender, to become a living sacrifice for you, to live with eternity in perspective and to have the things of this world grow strangely dim to be want to, to want to be called a friend of God and not a friend of the world. And that's what we call surrender. I pray, Lord, that not only would everyone here truly know that she is saved, but that she would truly know she is surrendered. And we will give you, Jesus, all the glory and the honor and the blessing and the power because you alone deserve it. We pray in your name. Amen. God bless you.